Astronomers spot something interesting just beyond Jupiter. Traveling at over 60,000 miles per hour, the fast-moving object clearly comes from outside our solar system and will soon shoot past the sun before blasting back out into space. It doesn't seem too exceptional, just something to keep an eye on. But a second glance tells us this thing is no ordinary asteroid. For one, it's huge. It rotates quickly in short intervals. It has an odd shape. And once we get a closer look, it becomes pretty clear we have an alien starship on our hands. A giant cylinder, roughly 10 miles wide and 30 miles long. The government dispatches a crew of scientists and astronauts to make contact. They manage to enter the vessel, where they find structures that look like cities, a breathable atmosphere, and no real clues about the civilization that created it all. If you think this sounds an awful lot like the plot to Arthur C. Clarke's science fiction classic novel, Rendezvous with Rama, you are correct. But doesn't it also remind you of a Muamua, that strange unknown object from interstellar space that made a flyby of our sun? And doesn't this story just scream to be made into a movie? The mysterious visitor, the mind-bending technology, the apprehension of the unknowable, our own hopes and fears, all wrapped up in the alien. Rendezvous with Rama isn't a movie yet. It's been stalled in production for years now. But it's the kind of story, with an alien you imagine, rather than see, that I find particularly fascinating. In fact, we can learn a lot about ourselves by taking a good look at how we imagine aliens. American culture is saturated with alien and UFO references. From the 1930s broadcast of The War of the Worlds... Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. To the umpteenth spin-off of the Star Trek franchise. My name is Captain James Tiberius Kirk of the United Federation of Planets. The topic spans genres from horror to camp to science fiction to documentary, and Hollywood has raked in billions. Aliens first appeared on the silver screen in the early 1900s, and they've successfully abducted our imaginations ever since. So what is it about aliens that keeps us coming back? When we tell stories about aliens, it provides us with a laboratory, a sort of mental laboratory. It's a thought experiment. It becomes a way we can test out different kinds of interactions with people who might be like us, might not be like us. And it becomes a way to sort out our similarities and differences. There's definitely something going on. And for you not to be open to it is to deny yourself the wonders of uh, imagination and all the great things that are available to your mind. Like if you're not like using your brain to think about the possibilities, you know, then what a drudgery is life. We want to know if there's someone else sharing our galaxy and movies give us a way to imagine the possibilities. But here's the question. Are our silver screen aliens a reflection of what's out there or just of ourselves? I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, Space Invaders, a series about the search for extraterrestrial life, where we're looking, what we're looking for, and why we hope we're not alone. one of the oldest topics, not just in science fiction, but in culture in general. You can go back across the world. Ancient civilizations have stories of first contact and, and alien encounters. So 
We're always thinking about what would it be like to meet people who are people but different than us. That's Lisa Yazik, my movie alien expert. You can look at some of the earliest novels from the 16 and 1700s, and people are struggling with these ideas. There were scientists in the 1600s writing about encounters with alien life as well. So, And then you take it, of course, into the 20th century when you have such an explosion of storytelling across media. So you're going to have films. It's been a, a marvelous topic for film because aliens are so fun to build. Lisa Yazik is a professor of science fiction studies at Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. As we learned earlier in this series, the university is really well known for its astrobiology programs. So I found it fitting that they also have a robust science fiction program, one that's been around since the early 1970s. I think there's a lot of ways that science fiction can be very valuable to the sciences. It's it's very much a virtual laboratory. It's the opportunity to test out theories and ideas that otherwise scientists might not be able to test out because the kinds of ideas they're thinking about seem too wacky, too far out, uh, too far in the future, or too far afield from where the rest of the discipline is. So it's a, a, an amazing way to be able to explore things that you might not be able to explore in the real world. And the other value, I think, is that science fiction gives scientists and engineers an opportunity to see how the rest of the world understands them and and how we represent the kinds of things that they work on and think about. Science fiction can be a window into us and into our potential futures. And similarly, how we depict aliens often has a lot to do with how we see ourselves and what's going on in the world around us. For instance, in 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, his scientific paper on evolutionary biology. There were obviously no movies at that time, but up until that point, aliens described in books and stories tended to be just like humans and animals here on Earth. There wasn't much conflict in those stories. They had more of a getting-to-know-you vibe. Just two interstellar species sharing ideas. Darwin's writings, in which he introduced the idea of survival of the fittest, really changed that whole picture. Suddenly, We're fighting with other species, trying to protect scarce resources and to survive. So in the 1910s, we're still very much in the, when we see aliens shoot first and ask questions later. And I think, again, as as the specter of war looms over us, and as we all remain in the deep grip of, of Darwinian theory, that it continues to make sense to us to think about aliens as um, either naturally aggressive, especially if they're male aliens, or if they're female aliens, we treat them as, as beautiful alien monsters, but also really scary because they tend to know more than us and they have better technology than us. It's a really clear example of how science influenced culture, and through that, science fiction. And in movies, this really takes off during the 1950s. And that corresponds to the space race, and it corresponds to America's newfound position as a global world leader. So we're dealing with, of course, the very real aliens of our own world, if you want to say that. The word alien comes from a Latin word that means stranger or foreigner, someone who belongs somewhere else. And in the 1950s, after decades of isolationism and then a world war, the U.S. takes center stage as a world power. We're more exposed to other nations, other cultures, people who are very different from us, politically, spiritually, and now we have to learn how to speak and trade and interact with them. They are alien in a very literal sense. Of course, it's worth remembering that we are aliens too. And then, of course, there's always that thought that as we go out into outer space, we may be encountering aliens there as well. So what you find is there's a lot going on in the 1950s, so many different ways of representing aliens. And many movies chose to use aliens to draw on one fear in particular, 
communism. Americans panicked over the idea of this political ideology, which they thought would strip them of their individual liberties and rights, and also at the idea that the Soviet Union would use communism to achieve world domination. Communism would infiltrate our cities and our communities and eventually take us over completely, turning us into something we were not, something alien. So the famous example is, of course, invasion of the body snatchers, which a lot of people think about as a metaphor for communism. Your new bodies are growing in there. They're taking you over, cell for cell, atom for atom. There's no pain. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories, and you're reborn into an untroubled world. And of course, this is the the boom in Hollywood science fiction. A lot of B-movies, like um, The Blob and The Thing, and they're very much metaphors for other things, right? The Thing is about, again, anxiety about communism, not knowing what the person next to you, what they really are, what their goals are for the world. The Blob is obviously also about contagion and, and worries about that. Listen. This is an emergency, and it can affect every one of us. That's all I can tell you right now. But we're trying to get things under control. But another trend also emerges in the 1950s. Friendly aliens. Aliens who want to work with us and help us. And sometimes, of course, we hope that they're going to save us from our own worst impulses. This is, after all, right after the end of World War II, with the destruction of the atomic bomb fresh in our minds, raising the question of if we humans have the ability the maturity, to handle powerful technology. And you see a lot of movies about that, about aliens who come and tell us, you're getting ready to head out into space, but you're just not quite there yet. You're not civilized enough. So the angry red planet where Mars wakes up and Mars is just furious with us because we're so warlike, which is ironic because Mars is supposed to be right, the, the god of war. Men of Earth, we of the planet Mars give you this warning. Listen carefully and remember, we have known your planet Earth since the first creature crawled out of the primeval slime of your seas to become man. Technological adults, but spiritual and emotional infants. These aliens act almost like our parents or our conscience, trying to help us be better. There's a sense that they've arrived just in the nick of time to save us from ourselves. They're guardians of a sort, like the extraterrestrial ambassador Klaatu in The Day the Earth Stood Still. So long as you were limited to fighting among yourselves with your primitive tanks and aircraft, we were unconcerned. But soon, one of your nations will apply atomic energy to spaceships. That will create a threat to the peace and security of other planets. Or even the aliens in Plan 9 from outer space, who want to keep humans from creating a doomsday weapon that could destroy the universe. This is why you must be stopped. This is why any means must be used to stop you. And if you think this idea that aliens can offer us guidance is just the stuff of movies, I heard something similar from some of the SETI scientists, including the astronomer behind the Drake equation, Frank Drake. And they will have gone through the challenges we're facing, global warming, accidents due to asteroid impacts, and they will have either solved these problems or been eliminated. So the ones we find will almost all be the ones that have succeeded in dealing with these problems. And that will give us great guidance as to what to do. So aliens could be like an intergalactic Dear Abby, someone who can give us advice and will, fingers crossed, be more friend than foe. They've singled us humans out because they want to help us, our alien saviors. 
And this maps with the revival of, of religion in America that you see a really renewed interest in religion in the 1950s. And then we're going to see that again in the 1980s as well when we see another religious revival. You'll go back to stories about aliens as saviors. It's no surprise that Superman is popular in both the 50s and the 80s, right? Because he's a friendly alien who's here to save us from our own worst impulses. This starts to shift a bit in the 1960s and 1970s as alien movies and science fiction in general start to become more self-aware. We start to think about the aliens as metaphors for ourselves and less about the other. The social and political upheaval of the time, like the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement, have us reflecting on who we are and what our future might look like. And it becomes very interested in using these ideas about outer space and aliens to reflect back on humanity itself. And so we begin to see a lot of stories um, like 2001 A Space Odyssey or A Man Who Fell to Earth. We don't know exactly what it is they want from us. And so instead, all we can do is examine ourselves and our reactions to the alien. Before, where we saw the aliens as the other, the communist threat, the intergalactic guide, we're now seeing ourselves in the aliens, and we're thinking of them in terms of our similarities, not our differences. The original Star Trek, although it was a TV show and not a movie, hammers this point home. Star Trek was exciting because it was the first time that we saw a future in full color, that we could imagine people from all over the Earth could go to college and go join Starfleet and then go have careers amongst the stars. But of course, they're also out there meeting other aliens, and it's those alien races and our engagements with them that become the metaphors for what's going on in Earth. We've got the start of the Peace Corps, the continuation of the space race. And, of course, we've still got the Cold War going on, with all kinds of proxy wars between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The Klingons in the early Star Trek shows are clearly analogs for the Soviets, right? And they're, they're made red, in case you missed that, too, right? They're given red skin at that point and everything. Humans become the analog for the United States, right? And different races then come to represent other countries. So we certainly see uh, global relations explored there. The 60s and the 70s also mark the next wave of feminism, the sexual revolution, and free love. And Hollywood definitely picks up on that. So suddenly we're seeing uh, really emancipated female aliens or f female humans who run around with aliens. So like Barbarella, for instance, is a good example. Oh boy, is it. The opening scene of the film has the very human and very scantily clad Barbarella video chatting with the president of Earth, who tasks our talented and beautiful heroine with preventing a deadly space laser from falling into the wrong hands. Something must be done. Yes. And you are the girl who must do it. Why me? Barbarella, I have no armies or police, and I can't spare the presidential band. Besides, you're a five-star, double-rated astronavigatrix. Barbarella is a little silly. Okay, it's a lot silly. But it's clearly a nod to the ideas of free love and female empowerment. Other heroines emerged too, including one who loomed large in my own childhood. Princess Leia from Star Wars, right? She is the only one of the humans who speaks Wookiee and who can talk to the aliens there. She's also the first science fiction heroine who picks up her own gun and saves herself because the men are not able to do that for her. So we see stuff like that. We see Ripley in the alien movies. Sigourney Weaver plays Ellen Louise Ripley, a warrant officer on board the spaceship Nostromo, an unlucky spaceship which unknowingly picks up a horrendous creature that manages to kill off the entire crew before, spoiler alert, Ripley succeeds in killing it. And, and we see her growth from just being a sort of regular Jane, everyday worker to becoming the hero. Not to mention one of the most celebrated movie heroines of all time.
Wild Thing fans, I have a serious message for you. If you're not already talking to your kids about aliens, it's probably time to start. Just this year alone, the James Webb Space Telescope found distant planets that might harbor life. Archaeologists claimed to have found mummified aliens. And extraterrestrials even got a shout-out during congressional hearings. No doubt your kids are asking lots of questions, and it could be you're not sure how to answer them. Let me recommend my new book, Is There Anybody Out There?, which arrives on Earth on October 3rd. This middle-grade book, based on season two of Wild Thing, explores the question of whether we're alone in the universe using science, humor, and fun illustrations. And it'll leave everyone better prepared for the possibility of alien life. Help kids learn how to tell the difference between science fact and science fiction. Look for Is There Anybody Out There in all bookstores and online. Or for more information, go to wildthingpodcast.com. While both the Star Wars and Alien franchises carry over into the 1980s, that decade actually ends up being a low point in Alien storytelling. And I think in part that has to do because the 1980s and the early 90s are a low point in the space race. The lowest point coming on January 28, 1986, when the space shuttle Challenger broke apart shortly after launch, killing all seven crew members. That really drives home that maybe we're not ready to send civilians into space yet. And, and just a sort of general attenuation of the space race as um, the American government and other governments around the world shift funding priorities away from social services and uh, space exploration and into economic and um, defense structures instead. So interestingly, what you see with aliens in this period is a couple different things. Like I said before, we see a revival of the dreams that aliens will be superheroes who will come to save us, like some sort of godlike figures. Movies like Cocoon, where the aliens come and give a bunch of aging humans extended life and a chance to redo the world. We see this in Starman, where a godlike man comes and impregnates a, a human woman. And if that's not a biblical story, I don't know what is. I gave you a baby tonight. It's impossible. I can't have a child. Believe what I tell you. He will be human. He may be of your husband, but also he will be my baby. There's also, she says, a lot of stories about what would happen if aliens showed up on Earth. How would we react? And it's often about the danger of our institutional structures that don't allow us to pursue friendships and communication across racial or species lines. So you might think about E.T., for instance, right, where we've got a, the bad government that just wants to trap this poor little guy who just wants to get home to his family. E.T. Phone home. Um, Alien Nation, marvelous TV show, I think it was also a movie. And again, about alien refugees who come to Earth and how is it that we deal with them. During the 1990s, the number of space shuttle missions doubles from where it was in the 80s. NASA launches the Hubble telescope at the beginning of 1990. And by the end of the decade, the international community begins assembly on the International Space Station. No surprise then that there's a resurgence of movies about going to space and engaging with aliens. We see um, countries around the world developing their own space agencies. So no surprise then we go back to the very beginning of the genre and tell the same kind of stories that we did before. We have space opera, so big stories that happen, uh, galaxy-spanning wars with race, different kinds of races and different technologies all whipped together. But this time we tend to tell it from a slightly more nuanced and less Darwinian perspective. 
The second batch of Star Wars movies makes its debut with The Phantom Menace. Although some of those aliens should have been left on the cutting room floor. I'm looking at you, Jar Jar. We get Men in Black, where agents have to enforce Earth's rules about human-alien relations. But they do it in a way that's as much about protecting the aliens as it is the humans. At any given time, there are around 1,500 aliens on the planet, most of them right here in Manhattan. Humans, for the most part, don't have a clue. They don't want one or need one either. They're happy. They think they have a good bead on things. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. So often we see that the humans and the aliens have the same sort of moral ambiguity about them. It's very difficult to tell who's right and who's wrong. And, and it becomes a complicated negotiation of uh, different races and their ideas. So I was thinking about we have Independence Day, Starship Troopers, Mars Attacks, Galaxy Quest, The Fifth Element. And in all of these cases, we have to think about not are the aliens threatening or friendly or sexy, but instead, how is it that we react to the idea of aliens within our space or us moving into alien space? You know, space invaders. Some of those themes continue into our movies now, not surprising given the social issues of the day, including tension over immigration and refugee policies, a resurgence of nationalism and isolationism, and fears about the splintering of old, peaceful alliances. Issues of colonialism and empire become absolutely central to our alien stories. You can think about Avatar or Serenity or District 9, um, even Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? These are all stories about what happens when one empire suddenly has an influx of aliens, right? Or when two empires meet each other and, and have to negotiate things. The aliens aren't good or bad, friend or foe. They're just aliens, muddling their way through the way all of us are. Neither threats nor saviors. Instead, they're, they're people like us, and they have their own complex issues. And I think the big point is, whatever aliens show up and whatever they're like, we have to figure it out on our own. It's up to us as humans to get ourselves through our bad spots and to capitalize on what's good about us and to, to make the galaxy our own. But no aliens are going to come and help us. Everything is based on the social temperature of the time, right? There's a sociological reason for all this stuff. And I think the reason why right now big toothy aliens like the stuff you saw in the 80s are, are back more and more is because I think people feel like helpless and like it's the end of the world. I mean, I'm sure every culture says that, right? Like it's the end of days, but it sure feels weird right now and people are on edge. This optimistic fellow is Shane Morton, and he is an alien superfan. At this moment in time, says Shane, the aliens we've dreamed up aren't so nice. The total opposite. You know, it's got teeth, it's got claws, it's going to lay eggs in you, it's going to turn you inside out. It's not a friend, you know. It's sort of like, to me, the greatest science fiction writer that came up with this idea is H.P. Lovecraft, is that the universe is cold and unfeeling and you don't matter. Like your life is insignificant. All your ideas, all your accomplishments are absolutely insignificant. Shane has a big grin on his face as he says this, almost as if he relishes our destruction by aliens. He's thought a lot about our extraterrestrial counterparts. In fact, he's devoted a good chunk of his life to them, creating them, designing them, building them, for all kinds of movies and television shows, feeding our imaginations. And right now, he's guiding me through the labyrinth of his Silver Scream effects lab on the southeastern fringes of Atlanta, Georgia. 
We'll just, we'll walk the whole thing so you kind of see it. This 20,000 square foot warehouse is stuffed to the rafters with horrific aliens and monsters and other really weird creatures. We're gonna see some aliens that we've done. This is a really good alien that we did. His face was a crab face makeup, a silicone makeup. This is a fun alien from Final Deployment, the show I did on Adult Swim. It's pretty obvious the man loves his aliens. He's got a sparkle in his eye when he talks about them, gesturing wildly and darting from one creation to the next. I wanted to do a crustacean-type monster. I've done a live-action episode of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. This is an alien that I designed for MacGyver. So MacGyver takes an uh, alien autopsy victim to a NASCAR race. This is a mold, a plaster mold, of skin texture for an alien for a movie called Assassinat. It's like Goonies in outer space, but it's super violent. Like, I, 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 was, I was pretty shocked at some of it. And like I said, he spent a lot of his life thinking about extraterrestrials, starting at a very young age. First alien that I made and did something with, okay, I've got a good story for this. I wasn't allowed to see Alien when it came out, but I had access to a camera. So in defiance of my parents who wouldn't let me go see Alien, I'd already read the book, I'd already read the script, you know, I made my own version of Alien in stop motion. I took an old G.I. Joe and sculpted the Alien over what I thought it looked like because I wasn't allowed to see it and stop motion my own version. I would kill to be able to find all my old Super 8 movies. Shane is now in his 50s. He's got pierced ears, tattoos of movie scenes up his arms, and a long ponytail cascading out from under a ball cap. He wouldn't be out of place as a roadie at a Metallica show. But instead of a life carding amps, Shane has helped imagine, design, create, and build all kinds of tentacled space invaders. The whole warehouse is chock-a-block with aliens, monsters, ghouls, dismembered body parts, a skeleton folded into a gurgling aquarium. He even claims to have a Bigfoot. Although, surprise, surprise, I didn't actually see it. The Bigfoot's out right now. But there's a whole Bigfoot area over there. Sure, heard that one before. Shane estimates that a solid 20% of his business is devoted entirely to aliens. A director will call him up saying they want some sort of extraterrestrial. And then I go, well, what does it look like? How much performance does it have to do? Does it have lines? And then I start getting into, well, what is this thing? You know, and then we start throwing ideas back and forth, and then I do some drawings. He goes, yeah, I really like this, I really like that. Then I put that into a sculpture, and then the finished piece, rubber and foam, and we figure out how to put rods in it to make it move and how to shoot the stuff, how to digitally remove the puppeteer. There's a lot of science involved. Sometimes directors just want something strange or gross or scary, something that comes to life out of Shane's imagination. Sometimes they want something with a very specific function, which requires thinking very carefully about an alien's form. These are parasites that, that I designed. They would get inside of people, and then when they get inside, they open up and lock into your rib cage with these things, and then they start, like, dissolving your body inside out. But this was the whole concept I just designed myself, so... There you go, there's a form and a function to an alien and what it would do to somebody. I asked Shane if he has a favorite movie about extraterrestrials, and I am wholly unsurprised by his answer. His first choice, like his first creation, is Ridley Scott's Alien. The first alien with the wonderful designs by H.R. Giger and all that stuff. 
you never really see it. It's really just a spider, right? It's a spider from outer space. It lays eggs in you and makes the while it keeps you alive so the eggs can feed on you and it's able to squeeze in the tight places. It's able to do like crazy camouflaging. You know, it's basically a bunch of ideas that exist in nature, right? But it's applied in such a way that you don't ever know what you're looking at quite. That was what made that so terrifying. Oh, I know. I saw that movie for the first time in my early 20s at a friend's house where I cowered, sweating nervously behind a tiny throw pillow, as if that was going to save me. And do you know what was scarier than the actual creature? The anticipation of it. Which, Shane says, is the brilliance of that movie. The bottom line is, you don't need money, you just need imagination. You know, you can make it out of shadow, and it'd be the most terrifying thing ever. The less is more approach always works better because your mind has to fill in the blanks and it becomes your personalized thing. That's really scary. What you and your imagination dream up can be far scarier than what some director envisions. And it makes it about what aliens mean to you as an individual. Like in the 2018 movie Annihilation, where we never actually see the alien. We just watch it take over us and everything else. And what is it doing to us? Robbing us of our individuality. The thing that makes us, us. Or if it wants. But it will grow until it encompasses everything. Our bodies and our minds will be fragmented into their smallest parts until not one part remains. Annihilation. And at a time when people feel unsettled and uneasy, the alien we don't see and don't recognize can be the scariest of all. A lot of the best monsters you never see. It would always be the unnameable, the indescribable thing, or it was so terrifying, it blasted your mind into insanity, you couldn't even gaze upon this thing. We've never seen aliens. We don't even know if they're out there, let alone what they look like. So our imagination creates all different kinds of extraterrestrial possibilities. And, as we learned with Lisa, our science fiction professor, every generation, maybe even every decade, the idea of aliens morphs to match the sentiments of that particular time. In just this past decade, since 2010, over 600 alien movies have been released. And that's just movies. Not TV, not comics, not video games, not books, not graphic novels. You'd think we would have run out of alien ideas by now. But we keep coming back to it. We're captivated by this topic. Humans have always dreamed of other sentient beings besides themselves, but historically we've been able to treat them as gods and angels and and as mythical beings that can exist within our own cosmology. And I think it's no surprise that as religion becomes less central of an explanatory framework, you begin to see more and more aliens. It becomes a way to fill that need for another being who becomes a mirror to ourselves, but who is not us. We've heaped all kinds of things onto the idea of aliens, and it's not always about fear. It can be uplifting, offering a glimpse of a better future, a glimmer of hope, to the point where extraterrestrials almost seem spiritual. I think there are a lot of kind of secular people who use UFOs to fill the like spiritual void that not having religion does uh, leave in their lives. 
what interests me is looking at it as a belief system. So I guess the philosophy and what motivates people within that philosophy to care. Our faith in aliens, that they'll save us, that they can offer us something better than life here on Earth. That's coming up on the next episode of Wild Thing, Space Invaders. If you're enjoying Wild Thing, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to good stories. And definitely tell your friends, because all of this really helps get the word out about the show and makes another season possible. You can find at Wild Thing Pod on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and check out the website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word, for more information about the show. And, of course, for some cool stickers. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus, Inc. Our executive producer is Scott Carney. Editing is by Alicia Lipinski. And the score and sound mixing come from Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Laura Krantz. 